1: My co-host is Angela Whitehorn, and we've had a very interesting week. For those that tuned in last week, we talked about the very popular book, Girl, Wash Your Face. And in fact, one of my pastor friends sent me a screenshot this afternoon of something he got on Amazon. I'm not sure if it says exactly what it is, but it says, Trending Now, Girl, Wash Your Face is the most sold book for two consecutive days. Now, I sure hope that Theology gals did not have anything to do with that. We'll, we'll just assume no. But a lot of people shared this episode and some people got some pushback from it. Mm-hmm. And so I wanted to maybe just respond to a little bit of that pushback. We've never had an episode that's been shared that much and we didn't even have a contest or anything attached to it. I wanted to know what sorts of things that Christians defending this book were saying, you know, protesting our episode or taking issue with it. And I I thought it might be helpful just to respond to some of those. And so one of them, I'll put you on the spot for this first one, Angela. She said, I don't see anything wrong with reading books I don't fully agree with. So if you're talking to somebody and she says, Angela... I don't see anything wrong with reading books that I don't fully agree with. I'm never going to agree with everything. What would you say?
0: Well, sure. I I think that there is a way in which that's an okay attitude to have about certain kinds of um, things that we could be reading, things that are generally sound theology. I mean, there are theologians out there today, modern theologians, who I, I certainly know right off the bat that I don't agree with everything from them, but I know what those things are, and I'm, I'm fine with reading uh, some of their other things and reading with discernment. This is a completely different category, though. This is not a book that I don't fully agree with. This is a book that the bulk of what's present is contrary to what we should be focusing on in, as, as Christians. It, the bulk of what is being taught in this book is self-reliance. It's the opposite of what we should be doing as believers. And so the problem is that it is not just, it, it, it may not be overtly saying, hey, read me, I'm a book about theology, you might disagree on a few points, it is, first of all, pretending to not be theology, but it is chock full of theology. Um, it's pre- pretending to just be advice, but it is it is full of new thought philosophy, which is um, just completely contrary to what we believe as Christians. So, you know, we're supposed to be focusing on Philippians 4, 8, 9 tells us what we should focus on. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. So I think about this book and the very first thing right out of the gate in this verse, whatever is true, there is a lot in this book that is flat out not true. You aren't in control. A vision board is not going to make your dreams come true. These things are not true. These things are not right. It's not pure. And honestly, if if people are believing in those things because they have come to the book from the point of view that – Hey, this isn't teaching me theology, so it's fine. I think that that just opens the door to being led astray and accepting doctrine that is packaged as not doctrine, certainly, but it's still doctrine. And so that's what I think makes books like these dangerous.
1: Right. And the the thing is that this is not a book, ladies, that you can take the good and ignore the bad, because the entire premise of this book is flawed. The entire premise of this book is contrary to scripture. The whole premise of the book is do what makes you happy, if I were going to summarize it, and you're in control. That is the premise of this book. That is completely contrary to the word of God. And I know that some people were saying things like, why are you emphasizing theology so much? You know, this isn't supposed to be a theology book. But the thing is, is we talked about already last week that it is being marketed as a Christian book by a Christian publisher. And anything in our study of God is theology, is theological. Okay, so it's going to, you know, theology is the study of God. We should all be theologians in some way. And I had a very difficult time reading this book. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. I think it's unwise to take books like this and say, well, I'm just going to take the good to even approach a book like this. I think that there's enough good evidence out there, reviews, quotes that we talked about, she doesn't get the gospel right. Another thing people were saying is, well, but what if this is, this is how they hear the gospel and come to Christ? They're not going to hear the gospel from that book.
0: That's exactly right. The gospel is not in this book. In fact, a patently false gospel is in this book. And if, if I had a list of concerns, that's my very top concern. This book attempts to tell the gospel. And gets it wrong and very, very badly wrong. And so um, I just keep thinking of Romans twelve two: Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. This book being saturated in things like this book, that's being conformed to the world. And that's exactly the opposite of what we are to be doing. We're supposed to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. And, of course, um, in our episode last week, we talked a lot. Uh, most of the examples that we gave, we compared directly to Scripture. That's how we're transformed by the renewing of our mind, using the Word of God to show us what the truth is. So I, I would far prefer to do that than, than to think um, naively that a book like this is is fine. It's not going to bother me. It's not going to ruin me because I'm not looking there for theology. Well, it, it is influencing you whether you are looking for theology or not.
1: Right. And so one other one, and then we'll move to the next subject, was you're being mean. You're just being judgmental. And I, I think we hear that a lot. I think the the passage, you know, "Do not judge, lest you be judged yourself." I think that that is misunderstood, and the scripture actually does call us to judge, <laughs> judge right from wrong, right. truth from something that's false, a false teacher from a qualified teacher. We're supposed to judge our brothers and sisters whether they're in sin. And so scripture as a whole does call us to certain kinds of of judging. We're called to be discerning. You know, the Bereans made sure that things lined up with scripture. We should seek to do the same. We were not trying to be mean or judgmental. Our goal was to hopefully show women, especially because I think that's the primary Uh, reader of the book, why this book is not something that they should read and why and how it's contrary to the word of God. One question that came up in the group this week, and that had to do with, well, should we not use any self-help books? And, you know, I went on Amazon because self-help, that's very broad. And I went on Amazon just to look at What books they had in the self help category. And it's such a wide range. They had, when I looked it up, they gave me Tim Keller's The Meaning of Marriage, you know, as a self help book. And Mm -hmm. then there's books on time management. I've benefited from books on time management or organization. You know, I've benefited from those sorts of books that are not Christian necessarily. But here's, you know, if you're not a scheduled person, here's a good way to develop new habits to make better use of your time. And I think that there are a lot of those sorts of books that can be helpful. In the list of the types of books they were, you know, calling self-help, there was even like a spirituality little section. This book did have a spiritual, I don't know if that's even the right way to say it, but a, a component there. Right. But this was, this isn't a category that I would say more typical self-help, how to be happy and successful. And I think the problem with those sorts of books is I think you're going to run into more of the same as what we found in this book. Seeking happiness and joy inside of ourselves and finding happiness in the things that we want and think will make us happy as opposed to looking to God's word.
0: Right. I I think that it's really um, exactly what you were talking about, that there is a very big difference between... Reading something that's to give you practical skills versus something that is a spiritual self-help that is clearly not founded in the, and grounded in the Word of God. I think there is a very big difference. You know, I'm thinking right now even about, I, I've seen recently a book recommended by Tim Challies about how to get more done in less time. Um, I, I think that there's plenty of books like that that are fine, that are about building practical skills. But this particular category is, is spirituality in a sort of um, pluralistic way. And that's completely different and something we should just steer clear of. Right. And, and I think the, the thing is, is if I get a book
1: on uh, like the one Tim Challies, it, it's not contrary to scripture. It's, right. it's just some practical advice. This book was contrary to Scripture, the book that exactly. we read last week, and so that, and I, I spent quite a bit of time going through like the most popular self-help books right now, and there was a lot more kind of like that, more like, more like Rachel Hollis's book. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, I think discernment is important, even on the things that that we read and expose ourselves to outside of our study of theology and our growth in the Christian faith. I think even the pointing to what's going to make you happy, because I think it's so easy to say, you know, I think I'd be happier if I had more money, a nicer house, a nicer car, my business was mm-hmm. successful. It's, it's easy to think that those things are going to make me happy. But I also think scripture speaks to the verse that you were talking ab- about earlier, what things that we ought to be thinking on.
0: And that's why it's so important for us to know the word of God, because that is, well, it just reminds me of um, the the story that you have told about yourself before on the podcast about um, when you were, I believe, in high school. And you you said, was it to your mom about, I "I, I don't want to believe. Yeah, yeah. Well, I should probably and, tell it again. I said I heard Yeah, something. sure. We have a lot of new listeners, yeah. so tell tell them uh, how you got started on this. Yeah, okay. So, I
1: vis- so I I had visited a church and different than the one that I grew up in, not a bad church. It was actually a Calvary Chapel and I heard something there and I was really intrigued by it and I, I'm not going to get into all the details, but I I wanted to find it in scripture and I, you know, I was 13. At the time, and I had my Bible, and you know how has the concordance in the back, <laughs> and I was looking up all the words, and I couldn't find it, so I asked my mom. My mom's like, "Well, it's not really in scripture. I mean, it's an idea that some people believe in." And that was really kind of like, "Okay, I don't want to believe anything unless it's in scripture." Now we have things like the Trinity, you know, where. It, it is there in Scripture, but you're not going to find the word Trinity throughout Scripture. So there are things like that. I think it's important to make sure, just like the Bereans, that the things that we believe do line up with the Word of God.
0: Um, so this person says, it's still a good book, even if parts of it don't line up with your version of Christianity. And, you know, what that makes me think of is what you're talking about with what we believe being grounded in the Word of God. Our objections with this book are not really about secondary issues like eschatology and what we believe about end times. Um, What we're objecting to is very foundational issues. And so um, where this person talks about version of Christianity, the things that we have objections to are not about a version of Christianity. They are about the essence of Christianity. What the gospel is, that is not up for negotiation. There are not versions There are not this person's version of the gospel and that person's version. We are not taking issue with side issues. We are patently saying this book gets the gospel wrong. And that is a massive problem for believers to be getting their advice, um, from that kind of a source.
1: Right. I mean, her, her description of the gospel was basically that God loves me just the way I am. Mm -hmm. That's not, that's not what the gospel is.
0: (laughs) It's, it's completely contrary to the gospel.
1: Right. And does, does um, the Lord love me? Yes. But because of Christ and his forgiveness and righteousness. Absolutely. Yeah. So I, I, I think with everything, a lot of times in our group, people will come in and say, has anyone heard of this author? And sometimes there's new authors, nobody's heard of them, or few people. I think anytime we pick up any book, we have to be discerning. If it's contrary to God's word, it's probably not a good book to read. Even... there are secondary disagreements I might have with an author and still glean from them. But when they get the gospel wrong, when the whole foundation of their message is contrary to God's word, that's just not the kind of book we're going to take the good and throw out the bad. You know, back um, before you kind of joined us, Angela, and I think you you were a listener to the show yeah. for quite a while, yeah. one of the topics that we often get requested, and believe it or not, I put in the group this week is there any topics you want? And it was getting requested again. It's like, been there, done that. And that was yeah. the topic <laughs> of of Lordship Salvation. And I think I've, I want to just do like a quick summary because I realize there's a lot of confusion. There's kind of been a, lo- a line drawn in the sand. You're either for Lordship Salvation or you're against it.
0: Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm.
1: And what people do not understand, and I'm going to once again say, go listen to our episode with John Fonville, but even more than that, go by Christ the Lord, the Reformation and Lordship Salvation. It's an old book. I read it first in 1995, or maybe it was 94, somewhere in there. I think it was published a few years, even prior to that. It's a book by Michael Horton and it's got several contributors. In fact, somebody who's now a good friend of mine is one of the contributors. My brother-in-law's dad is one of the contributors too. But, oh, let me say, you can get it used sometimes for two, three, four dollars. And so, Uh, yeah, that's a hot tip.
0: I bought mine used for five bucks. So, yeah.
1: And so, I mean, I bought I bought two of them recently for friends and I think I paid $4 and no shipping. I mean it was pretty pretty awesome deal. But I think it's important to say the reason why we say we don't support either side. We're not well, first of all, let's start with, we believe in the lordship of Christ. So let's start right. with that. Right. He is Lord. And we we proclaim that, we affirm that, we believe that Jesus is Lord.
0: Right. And right alongside with that, though, we say there is nothing that I actually do to make that a reality. He is Lord of my life. He is Lord of the lives of those who do not know him as Savior. Whether they know he's Lord or not, he is. Right. Just like my Christian T-shirt,
1: Lord of all. Or not at all. <laughs> that that is true. Yes, he is right. Lord. He is Lord of all. That means everything. But it's so important to understand. Well, first of all, I do think that it's been redefined partially in talking to people on Facebook. They're like, "Yeah, I believe in Lordship salvation," and I say, well, "What do you think Lordship salvation is?" Well, Lordship salvation just means that you believe that obedience follows salvation or justification. Okay. Well, if that's all it was, okay. Yeah. I believe in that the Lord is sanctifying us, that we grow in obedience. I affirm strongly the Westminster Catechism, what is sanctification? And it talks about how we more and more live unto Him and and die unto ourselves and we grow in obedience and it's a work of God's free grace. But that's not what it actually was. <laughs> and so, right, right. but it's so important. The reason why we don't affirm it is because it was a debate between dispensationals. Right. So even though I think some Reformed Baptists more so, and I've run into a couple of Presbyterians say, oh, I affirm it. I believe in what they're saying is I believe in progressive sanctification, that after, you know, we come to Christ and have saving faith, that there is Progressive sanctification. Okay, well, that's not what Lordship salvation is,
0: right? And I think that there's something to be said about the fact that this debate originated going on 30 years ago. Now, I mean it's it's a long time ago in theology years, and so the debate has been out there for a long time. And I think folks that are just coming into theology and studying theology maybe don't um, have an appreciation initially for the history of where the debate came. So like you said, it's very important to note that the lordship debate originated out of dispensationalism. So there is automatically, from the very outset, a particular hermeneutic involved. And so we as Reformed and Presbyterian, we are not dispensationalists. So from the start, we don't subscribe to the hermeneutic that's being used in this debate. And then For me, second of all, um, and I, I read Christ the Lord fairly recently. It's been a couple months ago. And so for me, what was very, very interesting in reading it was understanding that the classic Reformed doctrine already has long-standing definitions for words like faith. What is it? What does it contain? And so the, the historic reform definition of faith is that it includes uh, notitia, that's the what it is, essentia, that is the intellectual knowledge assenting to the facts. And then that final piece is fiducia, and that is receiving trusting resting and those things are already defined those things have already been part of our body of reformed teaching for many 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 years many more than 30 years and so when this debate came along uh, the lordship side of the debate of, uh, was argued by John MacArthur and he was arguing against Zane Hodges who was the free grace side of the debate but what the most important key issue for me in reading Christ the Lord was to see that what John MacArthur did with those three elements is that he took that third one, that fiducia, and made it into obedience. He said that it was equivalent with obedience. And so that was importing obedience and the works of obedience into the definition of faith. And so what that does is it automatically changes the meaning of justification by faith alone. If the definition of faith itself includes works, then when we say justification by faith alone, that that means that it includes works. And now it's not actually faith alone. And so that's where... Um, that's where I come at the doctrine and see that for me, I don't actually need this additional affirmation of these additional things outside of my confession and outside of my the catechisms that are in the Westminster Standards. That's what uh, my church and denomination holds to because we already have our historic classic reformed faith that already handles the definition of faith well and already handles the teachings on works. Well, there's plenty in our standards about faith working. Um, And so uh, we believe that works is a product of saving faith. It is an outflow, but it's not the thing itself. Right. And do you know that
1: John MacArthur, I've, I've done a lot of research on this, started to write something. At some point, I may put it out on the blog, but John MacArthur said, covenant theology does not have this problem. And he said, dispensationalists Ism does, but covenant theology does not have this problem for the very reasons that that Angela said that our confessions have very clear teachings on what is faith, about justification, about sanctification. And so we fought this already. We've (laughs) dealt with it, we've defined it. And I think it's important to note Saint Angela explained the, the redefinition of faith, one thing in the book, Christ the Lord, that my friend Rick Ritchie says is that sometimes it sounds like they're on our side, but they're using different definitions. So mm-hmm, instead that's of embracing right. something where they're talking about something else, let's go back to our true country and be sure that we don't fall into these minefields. Right. And unfortunately, we have problems in the Reformed faith too. We just got done with Two weeks on on federal vision. So while MacArthur was right e- within historic Reformed theology, we don't have the problem if if we stick with the confessions. Um, unfortunately, like federal vision, while they well the federal visionists would say otherwise, they they do stray from the confessions.
0: Right, right, and so it's it's just a reminder to me how wonderful it is that we have the confessions that we do, and that. They are a wonderful teaching for us to study and learn what they mean. Help us to understand what we believe that the whole council of God teaches from the scripture. It, it's very wonderful. It's. Every time we're having conversation with folks in real life and online and questions come up, it's so wonderful to know. I don't have to reinvent the wheel. I don't have to come up with everything from scratch. I have a place that I can go that can give me a jumping off point for understanding what my Reformed faith teaches. Amen.
1: I've had a lady that wrote to me and asked us to talk. She emailed us and asked us to talk about this. And I thought, might be interesting just because you're in a different kind of uh, season of life. You have young children, mm-hmm. have older children, and this gal has young children, and she realizes how much her life has changed just in daily Christian life and practice. You know, she said, "I don't, I don't have time to read and study the Bible like I used to, or pray." And, you know, she just really, she said, is this going to be my life from now on? Mm. Um, do you have any practical advice for me? And I thought that would be a really great thing to talk about because I, I think that definitely your life does change, even getting married in First Corinthians 7, you know, that the married woman, she has distractions, that the unmarried woman does not have, and and then, when you add children to it, it's a whole new thing. Sometimes I'm praying washing dishes, and even if i right. if my children were young, I would get up really early and try to read my Bible and pray. But life happens. A kid gets up uh, or I was up all night the night before with a sick child. I'm interrupted, you know that that is often. Part of life. Do you have any thoughts on
0: this? Yeah. Um, I, my thoughts are similar to yours. And so one of the things that I think about this is that a certain part of this is finding your rhythm. Um, and when they're very, very, very little, like infants, it can be so hard. And um, so the first thing I want to say is an encouragement that that um, period of time is short and sweet and just enjoy it. And as it passes, things get better. It's very, very hard, and things get better, things get easier. They get back to a certain kind of normal, and so um, that's my first encouragement: is that it won't always be that hard. My kids are five and three, and I'm still listening to people like you, Colleen, tell me that it won't always be this hard. Just every stage gets a little better. It changes. It, it it's different, and so that has helped me to, to think of that. Another thing is, you know, you talked about getting up early. I'm really a night owl. And so some of my best times and best hours of study are at night after my kids are in bed. That's really when my mind is functioning best. (laughs) So, um, so that's what I mean by sort of finding your rhythm. Um, different people are different, different things work for different people. So, so it's fine if you're a night owl and that that's your best time. It's fine if you're an early bird. Um, you know, when my kids were very, very little and I was up feeding, I would do some reading. And my last, I don't know if I want to call it tip, but it's it's at least something that I really love in my home is that, you know, for prayer and, you know, maybe not serious Bible study, hard theology, like uh, some of the things that we talk about on our show, but the basics are just as sweet. And so, for me, one of the things that has been really fun is the routine of catechizing my children. It's it's like catechizing myself too, and then praying with my children. Um, my kids are really little, and so they're with me all the time, and so praying with them and working through the catechism, that is good for me too. And it's very simple. It's not, it it maybe is not the level of Bible study that this person is thinking about, but I also want to say that there's some deep theology in the catechisms. So that would be another one of my um, bits of advice.
1: Yeah. And you can actually take the children's catechism and put it next to the shorter catechism and maybe get a little longer answer on some of those. So the, the catechism is a is a great idea. And even looking up some of the proof texts with your kids. Right. So I, I'd like to j- just share a few things since my kids are older. Like Angela said, you know, the, that early season is short. And I think it's always changing. I would say especially probably from when they're newborn to probably age seven or so. Once I think I kind of think of age seven as the time where I can say, okay, you need to go and sit here and not bother mommy, and and they won't or <laughs> they try <not> to <laughs> say they won't. It's always something, you know. They they yeah, like they don't bother you all day. You get on the phone and they're
0: interested oh here. absolutely. I'm pretty so, sure that's universal. Yeah. Uh, the other one at my house is um, no. As soon as I get started doing something, mommy can I have a snack? Right. (laughs) Um, This is, I I feel like this is my number one reason for existence right now in these years of my life is to provide snacks. And so that that pretty much happens every hour of the day. (laughs) Right. Well, and the thing is,
1: is it is going to be different than before you had children, than before you were married. And it's going to change in the next 20 years if you have young children now. And first of all, I think that you have to be careful not to, to be hard on yourself. Like I'm not getting my hour of Bible study and then hour of prayer done every day, so you. Right. Can- Less of a Christian, I mean, this—that's just not a thing. Mm-hmm. And you need—you need to be flexible. And so Angela was talking about she would read sometimes, feeding the baby in the night. I used to keep my Bible next to my rocking chair, and not when they're newborns, it's a little more difficult. But as I get older, I was able to, you know, I'm rocking them, nursing them, and I would read my Bible then. And I would pray. Sometimes if I I didn't want to read my Bible, I would actually pray while I was feeding the baby in the night. And I would take advantage of of those times. I sometimes pray when I'm washing dishes. I would write uh, scripture memory verses on note cards and put them on my bathroom mirror and then on the window uh, where I wash dishes. And I would do little things like that. And so it was just different. And then as the kids get, got older, I did different things at different times, but I homeschooled when my children were younger. And starting, as soon as they gave up their afternoon nap, I would do quiet reading time. And so even before they could read, they had to get a stack of books and they had an hour, they had to sit there, sit on their beds or sit on the couch and no one's allowed to talk and they would read. And my kids kept that up through junior high where every day after lunch, they would do that. But that was an hour for me of just quiet. There's not a right or wrong answer. You have to find what works in your life. And what works today may be different in six months. Mm -hmm. And so always finding, and and if you try something and it doesn't work, then say, you know what, that's okay. I'm going to try something different. This didn't work for me. So I think but flexible is so important. And knowing that like you got little ones depending on you that don't care, <laughs> you know, they're, um, <laughs> if they need you, they're going to need you right now and they may interrupt you. But I would just really encourage you to, to find even little portions of time. I remember when my kid, when I had four little ones, sometimes I just got 10 minutes here, 10 minutes there. hmm and sometimes if i had a really exhausting day i would put my audio bible in and listen to it as i went to sleep <laughs> at night you know yeah. and so you you have to do you have to do what works i think and find what works you know my husband worked second shift when my kids were little so he was he was going to work at like 2 to 11 or something like that and so you know my life is probably different than somebody whose husband works nine to five or was different because my husband works days now. But so you have to find what works for you and for your life and talk to your husband about it. You know, sometimes I know for me, it helps to kind of talk it through. And you might think, oh, you know, I didn't think about it. Maybe this would be a good time. And then also like I'm a morning person, Angela's a night person. So for me, wait, like nighttime does not work for me. I would like (laughs) fall asleep. And but then morning isn't so great for Angela. And so you have to take all of those things into consideration.
0: I agree. And I just want to double plug the advice of a of a daily quiet time for kids. That's something that we also do in my house. My kids have either a nap or they have to have a rest time every day about the same time every day. And that we have we instituted that when they were very very young and so um, I know that a lot of moms out there do something like that. And so, you know, some days I use that time to do dishes, but some days I, I use that time to sit down and do my study or my prayer or catch up on reading some theology. So I agree that it is extremely key flexibility. You don't have to have a picture in, my, in your mind that I must have this exact length of time praying every single day or I'm failing it's it's just not like that. Right.
1: And the the other thing I'll say, like Angela was talking about how, you know, older moms will say it gets easier. And it, it does. I mean, my children are fifteen, uh, 18, 20 and twenty two, and you know, I can say, Don't bug me for an hour, <laughs> you know.
0: <laughs> and and you promise the days are coming when they're gonna listen to that. No, I cannot <laughs>
1: Now, as we know, since I said that before we recorded this podcast and my son walked in to interrupt me,
0: we know it doesn't always work. Listen for the blooper cast.
1: Yeah, that's right, for the blooper cast when my son came in right when we started. So, yeah, and you know, I'm going to actually mention something. Since we're talking about this right now, and I'll mention it again at the end, we have a awesome giveaway. Andrew Rappaport from Striving for Eternity Ministries donated a journaling Bible. Now, I, I'm i not sure I would be the journaling Bible sort of person, but let me tell you about it. It is This thing is nice. And what it basically has is lines in the margins so that you can write. And I think it would be wonderful if you like to have a study Bible you take notes in. And it's an ESV. So check, look at our social media this week for information on being um, entered in to win that because it's a, I think it would be really, really great Bible study Bible. It's it's probably too heavy to be your bring to church Bible, but with the space in the margins to write and like my Bible, I have uh, my study Bibles. I got it in 1995 and it's a new Geneva study Bible. And it was kind of the early version of the Reformation Study Bible, like I have notes in the margins, but I don't really have a lot of space for those notes. So I was impressed with with this one.
0: I okay. highly recommend this kind of Bible, by the way. I have one. Uh, it's a journaling Bible, and it's just like you're describing with the um, an extra wide margin with lines for taking notes. And I love it because um, I like to write down things when I'm listening to a sermon or when I'm doing a study on my own. And I like to have that space out there so that I'm not writing over the top of of words that are already there. I um, prefer to keep that separate. So I like it a lot. So I, our listeners should check that out.
1: Yes, def- definitely. I, I was impressed with how nice it was. Um, he, he sent it to me. So there's a question that has come up a gazillion times, and we just got it again recently. And I've kind of just been avoiding dealing with it, partly because when it comes up in the group, it never goes really well. I, I didn't really realize there was like strong views on either side. And that is the that is a topic of unconditional forgiveness or conditional forgiveness. So if you don't know what I mean by that, do we automatically forgive people just because they've sinned against us or do we only forgive them if they are repentant?
0: Well, I'll just start by saying that I think it's really key in this kind of a discussion to distinguish between forgiveness and reconciliation. So it is possible to extend forgiveness um, to someone towards someone without actually reconciling. So you know maybe the person is not repentant. you can forgive and not harbor bitterness um, over the sin that they have done to you. But you don't necessarily have to mend that relationship when there is not repentance. In fact, there's probably a lot of cases where it would be wise not to do so.
1: And Angela and I did not, did not talk about this ahead of time. It's like the one time we didn't. And, <laughs> and, you know, this is this is something that I've been thinking quite a bit about. Let me read just a couple of passages on forgiveness from Scripture. Uh, Matthew 6, 12, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Uh, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. And that's from Ephesians 4.32, Colossians 3.12, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So you also must forgive. Okay, so I, I think I see it a little bit different than Angela, and that's okay. And I think this is why it gets kind of crazy in the group sometimes. I think that forgiveness comes when the person is repentant. But I think that regardless of whether they're repentant or not, we must we must put away bitterness and anger and clamor, as, as Scripture says. Uh, so when you forgive someone, you no longer hold it in account against them. Christ does not unconditionally forgive everybody who sinned against him. Of course, there's faith and, and repentance, which which comes along because of his work inside of us. You know, I used to think differently, but I've read a couple articles by pastors recently, and I'll include those in the in the episode notes. I know that Tim Challies has an article, and I think it's been a while since I read it, but I think he talked about that he thought about it during the Columbine shooting. And for some of our younger listeners, I, hopefully everyone knows what that was, but it was kind of the, bit, the first big school shooting. And it was actually not, not far from us. And one of our, um, one of the gals at our church or the family at our church lived next door to one of the victims. So at that time there was, and you see this whenever there's a tragedy, I just need to forgive that person.
0: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And
1: I, and I, I guess the way that I see it is I, I don't know that I can forgive them if they aren't repentant, but I can still love them, be gracious, not be bitter towards them and those sorts of things. So that that would be kind of how I would see it, maybe a little different than Angela. But I think that we're saying close to the same thing.
0: I was just going to say, you did say this differently than I did, but as you are speaking, I am agreeing with what you're saying. So uh, I think it's, this is just kind of highlighting, this is one of these questions that is very important to be just very careful in how we parse it out because what we don't want to do is have a situation where someone has been sinned against and we are counseling that person forgive, reconcile, get back to normal when the other person isn't repentant and you are just opening someone up to abuse, a, a very difficult relationship, um, or condoning or helping someone to continue sinning. Uh, we, I, I, those things are very. Um, possible to happen. And so that's why it's really important for us to handle this question with care. So all of the things that you said I have no pro- no trouble agreeing with.
1: And I think when you were talking about forgiveness and reconciliation, forgiveness does not mean that trust is automatically built up too. Yeah. Let's say you're a woman whose husband has been addicted to pornography and he is repentant. It doesn't mean that you're going to trust him right away. I mean there's still healing and trust that has to be built up and so you know, there are situations like that. The other thing that I think is really important is not to hold every single tiny little thing against someone until they come and apologize and are repentant. Right. If, I mean, if I did that in my home, I'd be doing that all day long, you know. Um, so we should extend. There are times to extend grace. So uh, if I'm having a bad day, And I say something unkind to my husband, and he recognizes she's having a bad day. She's not feeling well. He may extend grace to me in that moment and not say you need to repent right now for what you said to me, you know. Um, But he also knows that I probably, when I'm feeling a little better, will come back and say I'm really sorry for what I said to you earlier. And I think we have to be really careful because I think it would be really easy to just hold every tiny little thing against the people in our lives and you're going to get tired out if you do that.
0: <laughs> it's so true. You do not have to Matthew 18, everything. <laughs> you right. know, if The toilet paper roll got put on the wrong direction. We can let this go. Um, right. I think of first Peter four, eight um, above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. And so like, especially like marriage and parenting, these are the two, um, areas where it's most obvious to me that there are there are a multitude of sins that happen every day, and um, I, I have to continually remind myself that um, my love should cover those sins. I can let it go. I don't have to hold this against someone. I don't have to bring it to their attention even and say, "Hey, um, I'm giving you forgiveness for this." Just so you know, um, there are things that we can let it go and and let the Lord. Uh, Work on that person in his time.
1: Amen. The other thing that I realized early in marriage is sometimes I would find myself hmm, maybe more annoyed. Uh <laughs> you know, where I would be holding some something against my husband. And I realized on sometimes on those things, did he really sin against me? Right. Or am I just annoyed? And or was he just didn't realize? So I'll give an example. You know, he, he ran into an old friend in the parking lot at work. This is before cell phones and they talked for 20 minutes and he comes in 20 minutes later than usual and I'm sitting there worrying. He didn't intend to, to do that. He got in a conversation and, you know, as soon as he was done, he came home. And so something like that, He, I don't believe he was sinning against me. I think I was just more annoyed by it.
0: Right, right. So, Completely agree. There are so many things in marriage that are like that, um, that I have to remind myself. Yeah. Squeezing the tube of toothpaste from the middle is not actually a sin, (laughs) even if it does irritate me. (laughs) Actually, that doesn't. (laughs) (laughs) We we really don't have a lot of differences in our house over things like that. Yeah. Yeah. The the answer to that one is easy. By the way, get get two tubes of toothpaste.
1: <laughs> there you go. This is called solving your problems on theology gals. The
0: theology gals solve all your problems. <laughs> get your self help right here.
1: Right, that's right. This is your self um, theology gals. Your one stop podcast for <laughs> practical self help. <laughs> Okay. Um, we're going to move on to a yeah about that. Now, my son said to me, I don't think it's very nice <laughs> for you guys to call somebody out. Um, of course, he's 15. And I said, well, we don't use their names. And he's like, okay, then it's okay. Because um, usually if you're new to our podcast, this is yeah about that. There's a meme that's going around. It's kind of like somebody says something and it's not good. And you're like, yeah, about that. <laughs> Let me tell you how it really is. <laughs> that, that's what this segment is. Now, this particular, yeah, about that has actually been going around on social media. I saw it quite a bit, but I just couldn't resist talking about it. And I'm not going to say who said it, but some of you will know. And this person says, I just think maybe God gets sick of us Compulsively asking him, is this right? Am I in the right place? Did I misunderstand this? Did I do say this right? He's so patient, but I'm thinking our unrelieved nervousness finally starts getting on his nerves. And that there's a little more. Did God not know we were sincere the first 10 times we asked him? I think the rest of this little thing that was written is kind of like you need to just trust God. Which there is an aspect that, yes, we need to trust God. But what do you think about the, I just think maybe God gets sick of us compulsively asking him?
0: Well, this is where the doctrine of divine impassibility can help us. It, and it's a complicated um, idea, so I'm, I'm only going to give a very top level explanation. And of course, ladies can go study this further if they want. But impassibility um, is the doctrine that teaches us that God does not experience pain or pleasure from the actions of another being. So um, he's not impassioned. He, When we ask him 15 times for whatever it is, he's is not up there getting annoyed. He is not um, up there with the newspaper rolled up ready to smack.
1: So he's um, not saying, "Angela, you're really getting on my nerves today," or "Colby."
0: <laughs> right. No. <laughs> it's it, the this tells us, you know, God doesn't really have nerves to be gotten onto. <laughs> um and so you know, a lot of people ask, okay, well, then what about all the verses in the Bible that talk about jealousy, um, or- yeah, all of those things? And that's, as I understand it, that's anthropomorphic language. That's part of God's de- condescension to us and how he reveals himself to us in his word in a way that we as finite human beings can understand.
1: Right. And I think one one of the comments that people were making about this was that this person was trying to make God like he's like us.
0: Right. Right. And that's that's one of the things that um, is really useful to think about with the Imago Dei, the image of God that, um, you know, all humans are image bearers. That is God's image imprinted on us. It's not the other way around. It's not we have the image of God, therefore. Pretty much anything that I know about myself tells me about God. That's not really how the image of God works in us. We learn about God and what He is like from His Word, and His Word tells us that He doesn't change. So, those are hard truths to reconcile, hard to understand. Um, but that is what I think of that quote. I think uh, God is not up there being irritated with me, especially because. I am his child and um, he's pleased with me because of Christ. Right. This is not a good time to draw a parallel between our children,
1: you know, when we're having a bad day and they're um, pulling on us saying, why, 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 and and we're annoyed. And so we say, well, then God must get that way with us. It, it's not the same thing. This is not biblical.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I'll just say quickly, there is a book that does treat this topic. It's called All That Is In God. It's by James Dolezal, and um, I think it might be a, a challenging book for some, but it's it's very interesting. So uh, that kind of covers this topic.
1: You know, the, the other thing is, too, one thing that stuck out to me in part of this um, thread, it says, did God not know we were sincere the first ten times? And you right. know, sometimes it, in, in regards to even sincerity in our prayers and faith in our prayers, I read something once where it was like, you know, if you pray with great sincerity and you're obeying the 10 commandments, then he'll answer your prayers. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And boy, that, that, I felt hopeless. Do I ever pray with great sincerity? Am I ever ever as sincere as I ought to be? Am I I obeying as much as I should for God to answer my prayers?
0: Yeah, I I think the same thing. um, Because if I'm honest, I never pray with enough sincerity. I I don't think that I can. Um, I I can try. But if I think about that honestly, I could always do better. So... uh, I I don't think that God's, the way that He answers my prayers is not conditioned on an amount of sincerity from me. The way that God answers my prayers and and what He chooses to do in our circumstances is conditioned on His own will, not not the sincerity uh, or relative sincerity of my prayers.
1: Amen. Well, a couple things before, before we wrap up and um, check out any of our social media for information and being entered to win that very nice journaling Bible. I'll put pictures of it on our social media also. And, and if, if you'd like to get some Theology Gals merchandise, there's a link in the episode notes for Theology Gals merchandise. The other thing, and I think I forgot to say, I can't remember if I said this before, so it might be repeat, it might not. But when we had some technical difficulties a couple weeks ago, we lost some of our iTunes reviews. So if you reviewed us previously, make sure you re- your review is still there. If you haven't reviewed us and you enjoy this podcast, we, we would love and appreciate any iTunes reviews. So thank you so much for joining us and we'll see you next week.